I'm going to take up the topic of uh, mindful speech tonight in the, in the context of recovery, but in the broader Buddhist context as well. Uh, but we'll, we'll do a, a period of sitting, um, first of all, a uh, period of meditation. And just to maybe, maybe um, explain this one little idea. The reason we begin a class with meditation rather than having the talk and then meditating afterwards is that the understanding is that when we practice meditation, it helps us to be more receptive to what we hear. It helps us to let go of the you know, obstructions and hindrances in our mind so that when the talk comes, we actually are able to take it in more fully. So that is the logic of starting the class with meditation. So just settling into a posture that's conducive for you of relaxing and being alert, which is the, you know, the subtle combination that we, we try to achieve in our meditation to be settled and calm, but still clear, clear headed and awake. And you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze. Certainly no reason to be looking at your screen as you're meditating. And so as you close your eyes or again, lower your gaze, if you're more comfortable with your eyes open, and beginning by just feeling how you're holding your body, trying to find a, a balance and alignment in the body. Releasing the shoulders, relaxing the jaw, softening the belly, and there's just a general feeling of settling. Feeling the movement of breath in the body.
it's helpful as well to check in with your mental state, with your mood or mental emotional state, just how you're feeling right now. practice meditation. And the main obstruction is, is our thoughts. But very often our thoughts are being driven by some background emotion or feeling. It's not acknowledged. It's not accepted, it's resisted. I find it really helpful to bring this sense of openness to what's going on in my mind and body as I begin to sit. What am I feeling right now? Then if I find that there is some kind of agitation there, I work to open to it. I see if I can just turn toward it and receive it, feel it, not resist it. this attitude of acceptance then tends to help the mind to settle. We often kind of reverse that formula and think that we need to suppress our thoughts or push, a, push aside our feelings in order to meditate. But it's actually the other way around. When we stop resisting, then it allows for the natural flow of energy. It doesn't mean there'll be no thoughts that will be completely settled, but it generally 
support a kind of movement in that direction towards a calming. And even when there are thoughts, if we're not bothered by them, by definition, they are not a problem. So once again, we see that it's very often our attitude or our wish to control things that creates the problems that causes trouble in the mind. So our mindfulness practice invites us to take this different attitude, this curiosity to explore what we're feeling, acceptance, openness, So in the the center of this is still the breath. And the breath gives us a anchor point, something that keeps us connected to our body and to the present moment, to our sense experience. So we don't get lost too much in the mind. In the Buddha's teachings on mindful breathing, most of the time, the breath is paired up with some other aspect of experience, whether it's body or mind, feelings, or insight. that the breath isn't used as a way of blocking out anything, but rather as a a way of holding our experience. The breath, breath keeps us steady, open,
It can be helpful when the mind is busy to use a soft mental noting practice. Noting the breath in and out. Just to cut through the noise of the mind. Breathing in, breathing out. Can also make mental notes of thoughts. When you realize you're thinking, just notice, noting that thinking, thinking. The same with sensations or sounds. It's like we're just pointing at the things that are drawing our attention, whether it's breath or thoughts, sensations or sounds. Though sometimes using this verbal interruption helps us to kind of snap out of the tendency to space out or even to just get lost in the kind of nebulous feeling of the breath. We note that we are breathing. It's a, a good reminder, good way of staying present in a very simple way. You know, if it, if it gets difficult to be still and to sit, it's interesting just to notice what's happening that's making this difficult. This isn't meant by any means as a judgment or a challenge, but really just to understand ourselves sitting quietly with our own mind it is inherently difficult. Well, it's wise to understand what particular elements of it are difficult, whether it's a feeling coming up or a restlessness, 
boredom. Anxiety, disturbing thoughts, or whatever it is that becomes our, our work. Maybe not tonight, maybe not right now, but we see that in order to find peace, we need to make peace with that difficulty, at least to the best of our ability. Well, this practice is essentially quite simple. It nonetheless can open up complex challenges within us.
as we sit. There can be a settling that happens over time. Sometimes though, it goes in the other direction and you become more restless. We might get sleepy, mind can get dull. We're bored where we just start to daydream. One of the things we try to do with this practice is build up our capacity to be still, to be present for a sustained period. It's a little bit like training the body in the gym, challenging the mind. Stay present just a little longer.
Uh, forgive me for not doing the full 30 minutes tonight, but <laughs> uh, it is getting close to 11 here, and uh, I need to be awake when I give my talk, so. I was mentioning that uh, earlier that uh, I was at Southern Dharma Retreat Center. Um, our retreat ended on Labor Day. It was started on the Tuesday before that. So, and um, and on the retreat we uh, chanted the Metta Sutta every day, at least once, sometimes twice a day, because uh, I wanted people to learn it to learn, maybe start to memorize it. The Metta Sutta is the, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. Uh, and it's, it's one of the most popular suttas in the Buddhist tradition and, and one of the most beautiful ones. Um, and in the opening of the sutta, it begins, uh, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. And so it, it has always struck me since I first, um, you know, experienced and first saw and read and chanted the sutta, that right in the opening lines of the, of the teaching on love, that the Buddha talks about speech. Really, uh, you know, it shows how important speech is in on the path and and in terms of of how we um, express our care with people. I thought, you know, the, uh, for tonight because this is September and. In the 12 steps, that makes it the ninth step and the ninth month, the ninth step, and the ninth step is about making amends. You know, uh, after the step eight is making a list of people we harmed. And that, of course, comes after writing an inventory. And then step nine is, is when we make uh, direct amends to the, to the people that we harmed wherever possible, except when to do, to do so with either them or others. And it seems to me that, you know, an essential part of that and, and what I think is really challenging about that step is the fact that we have to be honest. We have to be honest with others. We have to be honest with ourselves, you know, and, and honesty does start with ourselves, you know. Um, honesty beyond just as spoken language but in, you know, because thoughts are a kind of speech, you know, honesty is, is seen in the 12 step world as being key to recovery. Um, and in the, the Buddhist world, it's interesting that it says that uh, in the tradition, it says that the, the Buddha, uh, over the course of his many, many lifetimes before he became the Buddha, when he was the Bodhisattva, that he broke every precept at some point, except the precept on speech. Um, and so that's, that's a pretty strong um, 
statement about the importance of speech uh, in, the, in Buddhism. Um, and, and I, you know, what, what I've seen and many of us have seen is that in, again, in the recovery world, in the 12-step world, speech is the kind of core of our practice when sharing in a meeting is kind of the, the central kind of spiritual practice of the 12 steps of 12 step program. And, and I think that's true of, of all the, re, the recovery programs that it's that community and connection and, and sharing are key. So I, as I often do when I'm looking for some guidance on a, on a topic, um, I go to Bhikkhu Bodhi and his wonderful book on uh, the Eightfold Path. And some of what he has to say, I think, first of all, just points to the significance of speech in general, but, but we can also take out of it some of the inferences about um, recovery as well. Uh, he, so I'll just uh, I'll read a few of his thoughts. Whereas for beings such as animals who live at the pre-verbal level, physical action is of dominant concern. For humans immersed in verbal communication, speech gains the ascendancy. Speech can break lives, create enemies, and start wars or it can give wisdom, heal divisions, and create peace. This has always been so, yet in the modern age, the positive and negative potentials of speech have been vastly multiplied by the tremendous increase in the means, speed, and range of communications. The capacity for verbal expression, oral and written, has often been regarded as the distinguishing mark of the human species. From this, we can appreciate the need to make this capacity the means to human excellence, rather than, as too often has been the case, the sign of human degradation. As usual, he, he has a, a turn of phrase, you know a means to human excellence rather than as too often has been the case, a sign of human degradation. And one only needs to access your smartphone, so-called smartphone, <laughs> to see the truth of his words. And, th and this book was uh, written originally in 1984. So long before the internet, <laughs> but uh, you know, tr Wisdom and truth uh, are timeless and uh, across ages. But, but this is something, you know, I've certainly reflected on in my book, Burning Desire. I've talked about many of these similar ideas and, and, and I talk about speech as a power, you know, in, in terms of the idea of a higher power at which, which we can see in a sense, Bhikkhu Bodhi is, is saying something very similar without using that language. It's very interesting to think of speech as a, as a higher power and what would it mean to turn your will and your life over to the care of right speech, you know, to, 
then follow the guidelines, which are first to not, essentially to not harm with speech, but by not lying, by not using slanderous speech or uh, harsh speech, uh, by by trying to bring harmony with speech, so so interesting. I mean, our you know it's the foundation of our relationships, you know, and uh, you know certainly anybody who's ever been in couples therapy knows that you don't have to be in couples therapy to know this, but you know I sort of gotten the word, yeah, I need to really be careful about how I speak, you know, I. I A couple times recently, uh, I've gotten, I've been describing to some people some of the changes that uh, went on in my wife's and my relationship. Um, this isn't, I don't mean to get into overly personal, it's not a particular, not really intimate in a way, because the things we've been through are so generic in a way. And whenever I, you know, it seems like whenever I talk to someone about their relationship, I see very similar patterns, you know, that at least there are a lot of very familiar patterns. And, and you know, we, we've been together for 30 years and, and used to bicker a lot. And, 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 and we're both kind of defensive types and also, um, you know, yeah, defensive. I mean, that's kind of like the main thing. And we, and we think, you know, I think some she's trying to control me. She thinks I'm attacking her, you know, typical things. I mean, it's nothing like I'm revealing something. It's like, oh, yeah, really? That's like every other relationship in the world. Uh, ver some version of it, right? And and there was this kind of breakthrough, and it had to do with my, my daughter leaving. So that it was like us, no more kid to just like focus on it's okay we're just just two of us looking at each other okay now what do we do right and and kind of just realizing that if we were really honest about what was going on if we could just say oh yeah i feel like you're doing this and the other person could go no i'm not <laughs> like i feel like you're trying to control me well i'm i no i don't want to control it. i just want to communicate this and so often it was like one of us was just hearing something that wasn't being said. So when we talk about right speech, it's not just right speech, it's also right listening. And right listening involves inquiring into what's really being said. And, and, and I think maybe that begins by looking at my own filter, my own interpretive device, which says, it's all about me. <laughs> And you're doing this to me. And it's like the other person is just like trying to say, it would be nice if the garbage went out today. You know, what do you mean? Why are you, you know, and, and we, we get into these things, you know, that are, that are completely unnecessary. And somehow we had kind of had this breakthrough where we quickly, where we were able to catch these things. It's like we finally got to know each other. <laughs> It only took like 25 years or whatever. Oh, that's what you're like. Oh, and became attuned to that. 
and are able to now just sort of, uh, you know, nowadays people talk, it's like meta, we're doing it M-E-T-A, we're like going to another level and talking about what's going on. Oh, well, I think what's happening right now is you're hearing this, but I want you to know that's not what I'm trying to say. You know, that sort of communication where you're really speaking to an understanding of each other. So I had no intention of talking about that. And, and so, I, you know, as usual, I digress. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I guess I've been, uh, you know, because I'd, I'd shared that with some people and I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. Uh, and, you know, my wife might completely disagree with how I'm characterizing it, you know, or might just be mad at me for talking publicly about, it. I don't know, uh, but she's not here. So what am I going to, what's she going to do? Uh, and very, very unlikely to watch the, re listen to the recording. Um, so I, I'm going to go on <laughs> and read some more of Bhikkhu Bodhi. So um, this is where it gets very interesting in terms of Dharma. He uh, says, uh, he's talking about lying and what happens when we lie. Uh, and he says that we lie typically out of either greed or trying to get something, out of hatred or trying to hurt somebody, or out of delusion, because it's like compulsive lying or irrational lying. But he says that ultimately the lie is a miniature paradigm for the whole process of subjective illusion. In each case, the self-assured creator sucked in by their own deceptions eventually winds up the victim. So I think we need to go back over this a little bit because I think this is talking about addiction. The lie is a miniature paradigm for the whole process of subjective illusion. So in other words, we're just, we're in denial, okay? In addiction terms, we're in denial. And, you know, a lie is just another aspect of that, that we're in this whole like illusion that we create. And the lying is just, a miniature version of it. And the fact that the creator is sucked in by their own deceptions winds up their, the victim, right? This is exactly what happens with this, with our addiction. We, we're like, oh, I don't have a problem. Uh, you know, you're, you have a problem. I don't have a problem. <laughs> you know, um, I've, I'm in control. You know, and it's just lie, 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 lying to ourselves until, you know, we're killing ourselves. So the, you know, the, there's a famous sutta where the Buddha gives a teaching to his son who has just ordained. His son Rahula was about 12, I think, when he ordained. I'll read this little piece. One day the Buddha came to Rahula, pointed to a bowl with a little bit of water in it and asked Rahula, do you see this bit of water left in the bowl? 
Rahul answered, yes, sir. So little Rahula is the spirit, so little Rahula, not little Rahula, sorry. So little Rahula is the spiritual development of one who is not afraid to speak a deliberate lie. So that little bit of water is like somebody who's willing to speak a lie. That's how spiritually developed they are. Then the Buddha threw the water away. Do you see this bowl is now empty in the same way one who has no shame in speaking lies is empty of spiritual achievement. The Buddha turned the bowl upside down. In the same way, one who seeks to tell, one who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievement upside down and becomes incapable of progress. So now we get to another you know, a deeper point, again, about honesty. It's very powerful. So the, the reason that the Buddha the, or the Bodhisatta never spoke a lie over his long training says the reason for this is very profound and reveals that the commitment to truth has a significance transcending the domain of ethics and even mental purification. That is, if you don't lie, then that helps your mind to be purified and to be have more clarity. But the, this reveals the commitment to truth has a significance transcending the domain of ethics and even mental purification, taking us to the domains of knowledge and being. Truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. Again, like Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, it has this way of cutting to things. It's, it's very profound and I think needs to be repeated. <laughs> Truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. So, I mean, I think that's clear, but I'll try to uh, say it in my own language. Speaking the truth externally has a resonance and a connection to our internal truth and our capacity for wisdom which because wisdom is truth, truth is wisdom. The two are respectively the outward and inward modalities of the same commitment to what is real. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth and truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things that they are, which requires that in communications with others, we respect things as they are by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their, their real nature, right, phenomena. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, 
on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. Very, to me, very really powerful and challenging because, you know, it's one thing to sort of talk about the truth, to talk about not lying. And we sort of like, okay, I'm not going to tell a lie. But the, the ultimate challenge of it is to ask what is true. And that's where we don't really have, they always have the easiest answers. There are a lot of things that we, we don't know, but we will, we will speak about as if we know, as if we had the answer. Thinking about the future, simple things. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> it's not that you're saying, a, it's not an intentional lie, but you're not really speaking the truth because it's just a guess. It's a prediction. Predictions are inherently not the truth. They are only guesses at the truth. So they can't be put forth as the truth. So it's so interesting. This is one of the things that I challenge people to do on my retreats when we do mindful dialogue, is to really ask ourselves to listen to the words we're saying and ask ourselves, you know, is what I'm saying provable and thereby confirmable as truth? And we find that a lot of very common things, as well as lots of others, are not provable. So that unintentionally, we are, I find that phrase from, as I dropped my bookmark. Um, yeah, unintentionally, we are kind of reinforcing our subjective illusion our own kind of enchantment about reality. Um, we're not trying to lie or deceive, but we are not living in harmony with what is really true. And, and so this challenge with language is to, is to really reflect on that uh, because it's, we do the same thing internally. So it's not, it's not like they're really two different worlds. They're just two different modalities of, of language. You know, we, we tell ourselves things, we, we plan things, we, we believe things that aren't truths, that are possibilities or likelihoods or hopes, but we frame them in our own mind as facts. And then we go along in our lives. And when something comes along to disrupt those realities, we're shocked. You know, uh, speaking of absurd, like subjective 
illusions. I happen to have uh, the news on this morning where someone was you know, interviewing the, some w women on the street, street in London. And this not young woman is being asked, you know, about how she felt about the death of the queen. And she, so, she says about this 96-year-old woman who just died, I was shocked. And I thought, are you crazy? Like, what world are you living in that you were shocked when a 96-year-old person dies? Like, you're just, you're living in an illusion, you know, just you're completely confused about reality. I was shocked. I was like, I, I'm sh you're shocking me, lady. Like, that's like crazy. <laughs> but that's like, isn't that how we live, you know? I mean, I can't help, you know, following like things like the economy, you know, you ever notice that like, if you've been around for a few years, like some of you and me, that like, it goes up, stock market goes up, economy looks good, then it goes down. Whenever it goes down, they don't, when it's up, it's like everything finds normal. When it goes down, it's like, oh my God, the economy is collapsing. It's like, no, it just, you know, it goes up sometimes and then it goes down and then it goes back up. Oh, you haven't noticed that? You know, it's just like this way that we live, like with this complaint, like, again, like the subjective illusion, you know, that we create for ourselves, the enchantment the dream and we speak it. So I guess I'm not just talking about uh, speech tonight. Um, and uh, I, I kind of feel like I, I cheated you too, because I kind of like uh, suggest that I might be talking about step nine, but I'm not really talking about step nine, except in the most general sense of, of being, I mean, I, I will, I'll, I'll just come back to that. <coughs> that idea of telling the truth about my own failings. And this is very much what I was talking about with my wife, really. It's like, oh, you know, making amends, that making amends in the 12 steps is the beginning of a process of becoming someone who knows how to say, I'm sorry. So it, it, it's, it was incredibly valuable for me when I first did that, when I was two years sober, well, then I was about a year and a half sober. And I finally did my inventory with my sponsor, read it to him and went through the process and then started to make amends. This idea of saying, oh, I did something wrong, I'm really sorry. I mean, of course, when you first do that in recovery and particularly if you've like been living a not so skillful life for a while, you know, it feels like this upheaval and this real, Oh, I can't, this is so scary. But what's, what's scary. And the reason it's scary is that you've been defending your ego for so long and trying to protect your ego. 
and and you've really been in a way you've been trying to protect your ego from the truth right uh, you know that i mean our our denial is that is that but then you know the idea that i don't know why i don't know i i, I don't know if all addicts are this way but it seems like maybe we're kind of fragile like it's really hard for us to oh i did something you know to admit we're wrong but uh, maybe i think it's difficult for anyone but in any case once i learned to do that then it became this regular way of being which i guess makes it a tenth step you know to be speak technically about it as terms of the steps but it's as again as people have been through this know it's it goes from this thing that's like frightening and and challenging and hard to face to something freeing and joyful that we carry with us and i apologize to somebody on this last retreat for something i said that upset them and it wasn't a terrible thing it wasn't uh, a shameful thing but it they were hurt and i needed to apologize and i was happy to do it you know that there was no what's the expression skin off my back kind of thing it wasn't like i was losing something but i but i think that uh for many people certainly you know again like somebody who hasn't done this process and is, is an addict and is you know creating a lot of suffering around them it is really scary and intimidating but but it comes back again to what this basic idea about truth is is that you know as long as we're our relationship to the the pain we've caused is one of denial and as long as we're avoiding being honest with ourselves about it then we're never going to be free we're never going to feel the the lightness and joy of of true spiritual freedom that comes with with honesty without with not having anything to protect without having any walls we need to hold up that there is this tremendous gift that comes with that kind of honesty so i hope that's of some value and um Yeah, I think I'd like to just open it up and see if there are any thoughts or questions. Thank you.